So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was having a meeting outside at a cafe and uh, with a young, uh, young man who's uh, looking for a church home in the city here. And this is a crazy time to try and connect with the church community. It's very difficult. So I was able to meet with him uh, for a coffee outside. And uh, as we were talking, I heard this voice behind me. And the voice says, excuse me, gentlemen. And I turn around and there's a man standing there. And uh, he's quite dirty from head to foot. He's got a shopping cart, which looked like all of his earthly possessions were in the shopping cart. And this man says to me, would either of you gentlemen happen to have an extra million dollars? <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. And I said, uh, I said, no, I am so sorry. I do not have an extra million dollars. In fact, I don't have a million dollars. And he goes, hmm, that's a shame. It's a real shame. It was a great exchange. So I, I, I took his order. I said, listen, I'll get you something from inside. And I went in and I got him some food and brought it back out. And, and many of you have probably done that sort of thing because in this uh, cashless society, you often don't have money on you. And when you encounter people that are experiencing homelessness or going through hard times, you, uh, you just go into the nearest place and you get them something to eat. So that's what I did. And uh, how, do we, how do we see these folks? How do we... Um, think about them? How do we relate to them? When we were downtown pre-COVID and you'd be walking into the downtown center, there was this little nook and many of you might have noticed that it was kind of sheltered you from the wind and there would quite often be somebody sleeping in there. What are, what are the thoughts and feelings that come to our hearts and our minds when we encounter the poor? Um, do we, are we moved with compassion? Are they an inconvenient stain on our otherwise increasingly gentrified downtown core? How do we feel about it? What do we think about it? And uh, we've been going through the book of James where this epistle is really asking the question, does our faith in Christ make a difference? For those of us who glory in this thing called forgiveness and the love of God, does that play out in any different way in our day-to-day lives? And so repeatedly through this book, this uh, subject of, of the poor keeps coming up for James. And it's because he's channeling all the prophets. He's channeling the conversation throughout the Old Testament about um, the poor, the treatment of the poor, this, this you know, inseparable connection between how we feel about the poor and the genuineness of our faith. And this is not because um, you're saved by your good works and how you treat the poor and your life of love. Uh, But he is saying that true faith is going to produce a life of love. There is a distinction between what the gospel is and what the gospel does. What the gospel is, is God's forgiving grace in Jesus Christ for us. And what the gospel does, James is arguing, is that should actually there should be an outflow of love and compassion and grace and mercy flowing out of us. That's the natural byproduct of true saving faith. And so... We come now to our text for this morning as we examine this and uh, consider the goodness of God's great love towards us. James chapter 2, the first 13 verses. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Suppose that a man comes into your meeting and he's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and you say, here, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves 
and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Now, one of the uh, arguments that folks put forward when they are not sure that Jesus Christ is actually Lord, that he is God, that he did rise on the third day, when they're skeptical of the resurrection, one of the things that gets said is, well, Jesus was a really great guy and he cared for the poor and he did a lot of nice things. He's sort of like an ancient hippie. But it, he's a legend that grew over time. They just kept adding to it. And over time, there was the idea that he became divine. I just want to very quickly say before we break out break break this text down um that james uses a word here that i want to draw your attention to he calls him calls jesus christ the glorious lord and he's not just searching for an adjective it's not like saying the amazing spider-man he's not just trying to describe jesus glorious lord in the greek iesus christos ton doxus doxus is glory and it's it's the same translation of the hebrew word throughout all the hebrew scriptures kabod which is to say God is divine. This book was written only 10 to 15 years after Jesus' death. You can't create a legend of divine proportions in 10 to 15 years after somebody dies. So sometimes skeptics will say, well, you know, it was over hundreds of years and thousands of years that this good Jesus started getting talked about like it was divine. I need you to know that this, this text that we just read was written by Jesus' little brother, and if anybody's going to tell all, write a tell-all book on a fraud, it could be your, your younger brother. Um, but, but the younger brother of Jesus calls him divine, calls Jesus God. So I just want us to sit in that for a second, and, and here's why. Because if, if this was just sort of fictitious, and if we were just supposed to kind of take this text and break it down into ethics and talk about being good to the poor, and which I'm going to in a minute. But if we just sort of left it as sort of a Christian ethical conversation, we missed the gravity of why we're being told to do this. If you were um, writing uh, about someone in the ancient world, an emperor or someone of great you know, renown, what would the motivation be? Well, quite often those people were in their employ. There was a monetary reward or there was going to be a political ad uh, advancement award or a position uh, sort of advancement in, in, in uh, the civil square. There was some sort of reward uh, that would motivate writing well of, uh, of a leader, of a particular person. But what was the motivation for James to say things like he was divine? What was the reward for that? Well, the motivation was that it's true, the, the resurrection is true, but the reward for writing this way was death. So all of the gospel writers and the apostles and everybody who wrote about Jesus being divine, um, the reward for that was martyrdom. 
And so I just want us to sit in the gravity of those words when he says, on the basis of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, how are we now relating to the poor? It's not just simply a conversation around, uh, can't be limited to ethics, though, though it is, and we're going to get into that now. It's actually being driven by this amaze, amazement at divine grace, amazement at who Jesus actually was. So this text here is written in a culture that is full of prejudice. There is hatred on the basis of class and ethnicity and, and, and uh, you know, your backgrounds. Uh, this is 40 AD, hostile towards people that don't fit into your boxes. And sadly, there's a lot of similarities between the hostile culture in 40 AD and the challenges that we still grapple with uh, in 2020 as it relates to, you know, sort of a culture that routinely, systematically, permanently categorized you. You're a Jew, you're a Gentile, right? You're a slave, you're free, you're rich, you're poor, you're Greek, you're Roman. Uh, you know, they would sort you know, this is your family, that's your family, you come from this heritage, that heritage, and you would be put into these boxes in these honor shame cultures um, as a way of sort of identifying who you were. And so as James is writing, what's happening is this sort of categorizing people and assigning value to them that was found in the culture was also found in the church. And so this passage in this shocking contradiction to the social practices of the surrounding culture of the time, uh, the Christians are being called to treat the poor with dignity and equality uh, and to do this on the basis of who Jesus Christ actually was, Lord and God. And um, of course today, the idea of treating um, the poor with dignity and equality is a very common idea. It's not a Christian idea. You can be a Christian, a Muslim, an atheist, an agnostic, and most of the people in uh, our city are going to share the, sort of this view, most of them, of caring for the poor. But you need to know that historically, uh, at this time, this is a absolutely uniquely uh, Christian idea. There are historians like uh, Tom Collins or Richard Bauckham who will tell you that um, in the ancient world, you didn't care for the poor. Um, the strong ate the weak, and that's how cultures worked. And here were the Christians um, quite uniquely caring for the poor. So this passage forbids favoritism. It forbids the favoritism that you would naturally expect to find in the culture as a way of stopping the culture from shaping the culture in the church. What's the basis for this? Well, here's the one point to today's sermon. We've got a one-point sermon today. Woo! Can you believe it? And here it is. <clears throat> the only reason you can call yourself a Christian is because God did not discriminate against you when he extended his grace towards you. And therefore, you cannot discriminate against the poor because spiritually speaking, we are the poor. So when he gives this example of the seating, hey, a rich guy and a poor guy come in and you give the rich guy the, the, you know, the good seat, this is not some sort of sermon illustration that James is trying to grapple. You know, how could I explain this way of treating the poor with dignity and civility? Oh, I know, I'll use a seating example. It was like literally happening. James is calling them out. They did this all the time. He's like naming it. Uh, he's saying, what is with you relating to the, the church and people like there are box seats? You're treating certain people like they're ticket holders. Some of you who think you're the religious who's who, you're walking in like you're season ticket holders and you're, you're casting the poor aside. You find it in 
Matthew 23 and Luke 11 and Luke 14 and in Luke 5 you've got the story of of the paralytic where the four friends lower the man down through the roof as Jesus is preaching and teaching and you know I just like to imagine that the Pharisees are right there in the front row and there's stucco and drywall falling on them because they've taken the best seats in the house it was happening it's recorded all through uh, the text so James goes on the nose and he's like, look, when you do this, he says, have you not discriminated? And the word discriminated in the Greek uh, is uh, hupopodion. And, to, and this is a figure of speech. It's a way of saying you take somebody's power away. This phrase, uh, discriminated, you've discriminated, it was often used to describe, not just in the New Testament, but in Homer's writings in ancient Greek, when, you would, when a leader would discriminate, a conqueror would come in, take over a region, and then the way to like literally take over the region was to discriminate. It was to take all the power away from the people that you didn't want to have power and to give the power to the people that you wanted to have the power. That's what it looked like. That's how they used this word. And so it was a figure of speech that sometimes could was translated in the English, you would make somebody your footstool. So what James is saying is, why are you making people furniture, like property, to be used by you, cast aside by you? How do you make somebody property? How do you make somebody like furniture? How are you able to just cast someone aside? Well, the way that you do it is you take their power away. You make sure that they, they don't have a voice. You can, and the way that that was done systematically was you could do it in a civil way. Um, you, could, you could legislate laws that ensured that certain people groups could never have a voice in the city. You could do that. That's, that's not an ancient practice. That still happens today. We have that in our history here in North America. But then even when civil, uh, civil laws get changed, there's still the private sector, right? So you can, you can make somebody your footstool, you know, in terms of legislation, but legislation can change, but then the private sector can go, yeah, well, we know the legislation changed, but we're still going to discriminate and make sure that the kinds of people that we want employed and working here and doing well, uh, we, we give jobs to, the private sector can still do that. You find that in North America when after the civil rights movement occurred and it was now uh, legal for the people of color um, you know, to after the civil rights movement, it was legal for them to go and to get uh, jobs or mortgages or, or integrate into society. It was legal in a legislative sense, but the private sector was like, yeah. And for a hundred years, they still discriminated in ways that made it impossible um, for these people groups to, um, you know, uh, make a better life for themselves and for future generations. So this is what James is getting at. James is looking out in the culture. And he's going, okay, I can see civil discrimination. I can see sort of the private business marketplace discrimination. But now I'm looking at the church. And now I'm seeing there's a relational discrimination. And I'm saying this is a major problem because this is the exact opposite of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who would sit and love and care for these people. So if we are claiming grace, grace, grace upon grace, then that should be evidence in the way that we sort of relate and love and speak and care and are moved towards these people. So this is what we um, sort of find here. John Calvin was a uh, theologian at the time of the Reformation, and he said this, he said, uh, regarding God's choice on the poor, which you find in verse five, by the way, he says, God has not chosen the poor alone, but he wished to begin with the poor, that he might beat down the pride of the rich. And God is not condoning partiality against the rich. 
So the, the solution here is not to go, aha, well, well, people who have wealth and money, you know, they're the problem and let's show partiality against them. And then we just swing the pendulum and create the same problem on the other side uh, of the ditch. These verses are given to provoke the church to examine how do we treat those um, who have no power? And how do we treat those who, culturally speaking, have a lot of power? How do we relate to them when they walk in the doors of Redeemer? What does it end up looking like on the ground? Do I show favoritism towards the kinds of people who walk into the church who I think have something to offer to me? And do I sort of avoid and don't make eye contact or talk to anybody that I think has nothing to offer me? What does this look like on the ground? You know, pre-COVID, we were downtown, and on occasion, you'd have folks walk in who are going through a season of homelessness, and they'd walk into our service. Remember one guy's name was Brian. He'd come in, you know, two minutes before my ser- sermon was over, and he's like, okay, now is the time to be able to go back and get some coffee and cookies. Great, wonderful, no problem. I mean, a lot of you might be thinking right now, that's actually a great strategy. Maybe I'll come into the last two minutes of Paul's sermon, get the gospel, hear about the goodness of Christ's grace for me, and get right to the coffee. But that's what Brian was doing. And uh, many of you, I saw, because I observed that you'd go over and chat with them or go get them some cookies, get, make them a coffee or whatever, and this would occur on occasion. And, uh, but I want to provoke you to consider, um, or some of you, did some of you see Brian? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, but there was kind of something inside you that prevented you from going and giving this man dignity and and uh, speaking to him and 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 uh, caring for him. Many many of you may uh, remember um, that again uh, when we started downtown, there was a lady who, when she started coming to Redeemer, she lived in her car, and many of you cared for her in various ways. And um, over time, over a period of months. Um, she was taken in by another lady who was at the church at that time, who was also going through difficult times. And uh, they shared an apartment together. And after m- lots of hard work uh, in various ways, some of you dropped off beds and things for the apartment, things like that, care for them. You know, today, um, they're no longer with us. They've moved on. But what's our attitude toward that? What will we do the next time? Will we say, oh, we've tried it. We've reached out. We cared. We gave. And the ROI is not there. They didn't stick around. So the next time we see people, the ROI is just not there in making these investments. No, absolutely not. The goodness of God and his grace towards us is not calculating the ROI. He's just loving and caring and a God of grace. And so we must relate now to the poor, recognizing that um, spiritually speaking, we are the poor. So as I've been having conversations with some churches in the city this last week about what could 2021 look like, is it possible for us to share the, the, the worship space in the building. We don't know where, where we're going to end up next year, but as we're making those plans in the city, uh, what will happen if we end up sharing a worship space downtown where, um, where, the, where these folks can walk in at any point on our service? How will we relate to them? How will we care for them? Uh, will we afford them dignity? Or will we sort of make sure that relationally we take away their power? So that after a couple visits, they really sort of get the vibe like, I don't think I'm wanted here. So that eventually they leave. And then in the end, we're like, okay, mission accomplished. uh, Because that was really uncomfortable. This text is provoking us to consider, um, you know, relationally speaking, who who are we giving the seats to? Verse 8, when you look at it, it says, If you really keep the royal law that's found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you're a lawbreaker. 
And if you stumble at one point of the law, you're guilty of, of breaking all of it. And what James is really doing here, because he's a pastor who, he's just waiting for somebody to, to do sort of a pick and choose scripture situation. He's just waiting for somebody almost to come up to him and say, um, well, hey, the Bible says love your neighbor and the rich guy came in and he's my neighbor. So I'm just loving him by letting him sit here. And what James is going is, no, there's a, you can't pick and choose portions of God's word to say, well, I'm upholding this piece so I can sort of passively dismiss this over here. And we know that uh, James is, of course, doing this because he's getting to the motive. He's saying, have you not judged in your hearts? He's saying, don't sort of justify your behavior by, fi- by grabbing a scripture that seems sort of vaguely connected um, to, uh, to what you want to be doing when really underneath it, there's a motive there that isn't loving. And so he's guarding against this sort of uh, uh, selective obedience. And so the goal of this whole passage here for, for James and his church and for us uh, here in our church is to consider God's law, the command to love our neighbor as we love ourselves and to love God. And as we're considering God's law, um, to be humbled by God's law, that we can take an inventory of how it is that we relate to everyone here in the Redeemer community. And after considering God's law and being humbled by God's law, being very grateful for God's grace, moving from a place of confession of our own guilt to gratitude, And on this Thanksgiving weekend, we can find this tremendous gratitude as we are thankful for God's grace in our own life, desire to be ministers of to God's grace of to the downtrodden, and then moved by God's Spirit uh, to kindness and generosity and genuine care. The text goes on to say, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. And it says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not merciful, mercy triumphs over judgment. So for us, as those who celebrate mercy over judgment, as those of us who celebrate that because of Jesus, we will receive mercy and not judgment, may we not look on the poor with judgment, but with compassion. And may this compassion in various ways, very small and ordinary ways, as you go about the city and as you live your life, May our compassion move us to action. And as we gather together again, God willing, Lord, may it be soon that we are able to gather together regularly in worship as a community. May our compassion move us to action with each other uh, in this Redeemer community and with those who may walk in through our doors. Jesus, this Lord of glory, he did not discriminate against us, the spiritually poor. He didn't come with crushing power. He came and he laid down his power. He didn't come to bring God's judgment on us. He came to bear God's judgment for us. We are the poor. And so when God added humanity to his deity and he came to earth, he chose to come in poverty. He he did this to hold up a mirror to all of us, to our humanity, to show us that apart from him, we are all destined for eternal poverty. And so God took his one opportunity to be human and he clothed himself in the dirt of his own creation and he chose to be born in a filthy feeding trough to parents who were so poor they could only bring two small doves to the the temple at his dedication, at his presentation. And so we deserve this judgment without mercy. 
But because of the perfectly loving life of Jesus Christ, his perfectly obedient life, his perfectly atoning death, his divine resurrection, he took God's judgment so that we will only know God's mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray.